The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. Before we get going here, I want to just draw your attention to one thing. We have a table in the front lobby for Wildcat Mentoring. And I have seen uh, just personally the power of these relationships. My wife has been a Wildcat mentor the last couple of years, and, and she can't get enough of it, and she loves it. And so I just have seen how it's impacted our family. Um, I would love for you to have the blessing of pouring your life into a fifth or a sixth grader here in TISD. And so that, if that's something you're drawn to, I'd love to invite you to the, to the table in the lobby out front for Wildcat mentoring and see how else you can live on mission in our city. Uh, so last time I preached, I had to preach about hell. And today I get to talk about community. So this is a good day. This is a really good day. Uh, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We are doing a four-week series in Colossians. Week one, Gary talked about what it means to be rooted in Christ. And then last week he talked about what it means to uproot sin in our lives now listen, last week's sermon was PG-13, so this will be, today's going to be PG, don't worry, you can leave the kids in here for this one, uh, but today we're going to talk about how when God saves us, we are then replanted into a community, into God's people, God's corporate body, the church. We are not saved just to get a ticket stamped to heaven. We are not saved just to get a pass to eternity. We are saved so we can be placed and planted into the corporate body, the church. So here's a big picture view of Colossians. Chapters 1 and 2 is all about what God has done. Chapters 3 and 4 is all about what God wants done. And this is a pattern that you'll see in much of Paul's writing. Paul will first address identity and then address activity. Identity always comes before activity. This is a pattern of Paul's writing. In the early chapters of Colossians, you see words like You've been reconciled, you are filled, you've been buried, you've been raised. And in verse, look down at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Look back at that verse. This is a pivot verse of the whole book. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. What that means is everything that came before it now hinges, or everything that comes after it hinged on what came before it. If then you've been raised with Christ. Every command in chapters 3 and 4 flows from this new identity in Christ that Paul talks about in Colossians chapters 1 and 2. You might say it like this. We are not working for righteousness. We are working from righteousness. What you and I, de- what, what you and I do in our walk with God needs to flow out of what has already been done. Anything apart from that is legalism. If we try to approach the Christian life like a bunch of, like a checklist, like do this and don't do this, it becomes a checklist and it's just legalism. And so as we get into chapters three and four, I want you to keep your eye on one and two. Otherwise, you get off into um, some legalism and some behavior modification and, and it's not rooted in the correct things. I think we need to keep it rooted in. So I want to raise a question. As a Christian, how do we avoid falling into legalism? I want you to see this quote by D.A. Carson. He says, people will not drift towards holiness apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. Instead, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. 
we drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. I want you to focus on this idea, grace-driven effort. Because many Christians, I think, today think we are saved by grace but grow by works. We think we're justified by grace, but we somehow grow by, um, we're sanctified by effort. We're sanctified by just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting after it. And there is some effort involved, but you have to understand in the, in, in the spiritual life, even sanctification is driven by grace. The same grace that saves you and justifies you is the same grace that grows you and sanctifies you. And if you don't think that grace is what enables and empowers your sanctification, then it just ends up, think about if you were to take credit for your spiritual growth, thinking it's in your own strength, your own efforts. What's the result of that? You're going to have pride, self-righteousness. Look look what I did in my own life. So you have to understand this, this whole process is enabled by God's grace. And if you see it as anything else, you're going to fall into a works-based righteousness. Throughout all of Paul's letters, identity precedes activity. I think of a few years ago, um, Stuart Briscoe preached here, as he does every year. And he stood on this stage and he talked about how when he does a wedding, he said, whenever I do a wedding... I stand before the congregation and the couple and I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And he said, I just declare it that they're married. But they're going to spend the rest of their life becoming married. They're going to spend the rest of their life becoming what they already are. I think this is an accurate picture of what it means to be a Christian. Because in the Bible, we learn that once you are a believer, you are declared righteous. God declares it. But you'll spend the rest of your life becoming what you already are. You'll spend the rest of your life becoming it and living it. And this, I think, is an accurate picture of the Christian life. So look at Colossians chapter uh, 3. We'll start in verse 12. Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And I think you see right here in this passage, we see identity before activity. Identity words are, you're you're God's chosen ones, you are holy, you are beloved. And then what flows from this identity is things like, so put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, and patience. So identity always leads towards the actions, what we're supposed to do. Now, um, this word compassionate hearts is interesting because in the Greek, uh, the word for heart actually means bowels. And in our culture, of course, um, we connect emotion to the heart, but in Greek culture, they connected it to the intestines. So imagine that on your Valentine's Day (laughs) card. 
Like, what is this on my card? Is that a large intestine? Uh, but I want you to notice something in this passage because he doesn't say just do compassionate things. He says, put on a compassionate heart. What that means is from, from your guts, you should be loving people and be compassionate towards people. That means be a compassionate person. Don't just do compassionate things. I want you to think about the ministry of Jesus. When you open up the gospels and Jesus sees a crowd. What does it often say? It says, Jesus looked at the crowd and he had compassion on them. I think we think of Jesus like he's some detached, robotic, miracle worker sometimes. Like he just sort of floats in, does a miracle, then floats out and goes back to the Father. And yet, when you look at the pages of Scripture, it says, no, he had compassion. So from his guts, he had compassion on these people. And this is why he did these kinds of miracles for them. I want you to also look at the rest of this list. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. These virtues are not valued in our culture because we think of them as weak. We think of those things as, those are mamby-pamby things to be. And if you want people to take you seriously... We encourage you to strive for other things like power and domination and be someone who is large and in charge and you, you're just in command. And so we don't, we don't think about these virtues and value these virtues as much in our culture today. We think if we're compassionate, kind, humble, or patient, people are just going to run us over. And they might. And they might. But each one of these requires a strength a power that's working through you in the Holy Spirit. Because um, think about if you're on I-35 and someone cuts you off. You are really tempted to give them the one-finger wave, right? That's the temptation. But if, if you don't, if you refrain, if you don't do that, is that, is that weakness or is that strength? This is the strength of God that's working in someone's life if they can exhibit these kinds of things. And think about kindness. I mean, do you know how difficult kindness is, especially in today's political climate? People think today, if as long as I'm right, I don't need to be kind. And I think this list of virtues that we see in this passage We take them for granted. We think that, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to be those things, but we don't really um, allow God to work these things out in our lives, I think, in the body of Christ. And again, this list is not just about doing nice things, but being this kind of person from the heart. Look with me at verse 13. It says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now this whole verse is a descriptor or a modifier of the previous uh, verse. So when it says bearing with each other, this is now showing you what patience looks like. It's describing what patience looks like. And this is not just referring to like being patient with your kids as they throw Cheerios at each other in the backseat of the minivan. That's not what it's referring to. It's referring to when someone intentionally 
sins against you. So look at the next phrase where it says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven. This is referring to someone who has intentionally sinned against you. How you're supposed to respond to this, this kind of person. This whole section, take note, this whole section is written to the, not to the offender, but to the offended. This whole section of scripture is written to those of you in the body of Christ who you've got a chip on your shoulder, you've got something someone did to you in the body that's this is wrong, and you just, you're offended. You've been offended by someone. This whole section is written towards that kind of person. In the church, when other people sin against us, what do we think? What do we say? We say things like, can you believe this happened in the church? I mean, everyone here is supposed to be perfect. That's how we think. Like, can you believe this is happening in, in the church? And I don't know where this idea comes from. It's certainly not in the Bible. It, I, I love Paul's honesty and the Bible's honesty that you should expect to have to forgive some people in the church. You should expect it. Because here's what normally happens whenever we feel wronged by someone. You're, you're pushing your cart through HEB, and you look down the aisle, and you see the person that really ticked you off, and what do you do? The, the sudden U-turn, right? I think I forgot the milk, right? And we've all done that. And, and so listen, forgiveness doesn't mean we just avoid people. It doesn't mean we just try to avoid. What Paul is saying here is that we need to move towards each other with these virtues. That's the picture I think he's trying to create for us um, in this passage. I know some are going to say, well, um, you know, I can't forgive. It's just too painful. Well, I think we can agree. Forgiveness, Forgiveness is always painful. I think the cross shows that. Forgiveness is painful. It's always painful. Or you might have, um, there's, there's really, I think, two options you have. You have either forgiveness or you have bitterness when someone wrongs you. And if forgiveness is painful, and it is, bitterness is painful all the more. Or one reaction you might have is, um, well, I can't forgive that person because, because they, don't, they don't deserve it. That's, that's kind of the point of forgiveness, isn't it? That they don't, they don't deserve forgiveness <laughs> If you look at the cross, I mean, Jesus, like, I don't, I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't think anybody here deserves forgiveness in our own right. But Jesus offers that to us, and that's what he's asking us to offer to others. Even if they don't deserve it, which no one deserves it, we're still supposed to offer it. I think in our lives we tend to well, if they apologize, or if they make it right, or if they own up to it, no, that's not, this, this passage is written to the offended. This is how you're supposed to respond. And you're supposed to respond in the same way that Jesus responded, to give out forgiveness, because no one truly deserves forgiveness. If you look back, look back at, the, um, at verse 13. How do we become people who forgive? 
I think you become this kind of person by reflecting on the cross a lot. As you and I think and meditate and reflect on what Jesus did on the cross for us, forgiveness becomes a little bit easier. It's never easy, but it becomes a little bit easier. As you reflect on that and think about what he did for us, So for the Christian, the Christian can't be someone who just claims God's forgiveness, claims God's mercy, claims God's grace, but then be slow to give it out. This is not a picture um, that accurately depicts the grace and mercy that Jesus so freely gives out to us. Forgiveness has to be the regular pattern for the people of God. So as a high school pastor, something that I struggle with sometimes with my students is I'll have a student that will say, you know, I, I don't want to come down there to the outback because, you know, this person did this against me or, or you know, frankly, um, the, the people down there are just, just kind of immature and I don't like that. And I'll just look at them and say, well, you know, I mean, m- mature people can handle the immaturity of others. And I think this is the concept of, of bearing with. Like the minute you and I step into, well, well I, don't, I, I don't want to go near them because, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, we don't say it, but beneath me. Okay, we, we bear with. We, we bear with each, this is what this means. And so if we're going to claim maturity, we have to actually be mature. And live it out. Look at verse 14. He says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this is where things get kind of a little crazy. Because Paul doesn't leave us just at bearing with and forgiving because when you think of bearing with, don't, don't you think of, okay, put up with each other, tolerate each other. So now he goes to another gear. He says, put on love towards each other. Love is the virtue that binds all these other things together. Love binds these things together as one. And if you don't have love, then you're going to approach Everything I've read to you so far as just a checklist. You're going to approach it like it's just something to do. Like you check it off because you did it. Imagine trying to be kind without genuine love. We've all seen that person or we've been that person. We're trying to be kind, but we don't have any true love for the person. So it results in a lot of forced smiles and a lot of fake. Imagine trying to be gentle or compassionate if there's no genuine love. So, so Paul's bringing it all back to this idea that if we're going to truly do this the right way, there has to be an energy of love flowing behind these virtues. Otherwise, you just get into like crossing off a checklist and saying, yeah, I did a compassionate thing. I did a kind thing. I, did, I was gentle in that moment. I was gentle. But you've got to have love. There's got to be love. 
If you love someone, you are more inclined towards bearing with and forgiving other people. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, above all, keeping, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Well, when you love someone, you're more inclined to forgive. When I wrong my wife, which happens occasionally, because she loves me, she is inclined to forgive. When, when my kids wrong me, which happens frequently, because I love my kids, I am more inclined to forgive. It's like, yeah, they, they apologize, they're repentant. They're like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm forgiving. There's no question. When you love someone, you're more inclined to forgive them. Forgiveness doesn't become just some intellectual switch or some decision, but you're inclined to forgive because of your love for this person. Look at verse 16 of Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, it's taken us a while to get here, but what I really want to talk about today is community. Unity in the body of Christ. All we've talked about so far, none of this can happen apart from community. Look back at verse uh, 16 again. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What he's saying is the message of Christ, the gospel, should dwell in you so richly that you should be able to teach and admonish one another. This message should be so deeply held and so highly thought of among the people of God that you can teach each other. So I want you to get this picture. I think most of us think of teaching happening with whoever's on the stage, or, or maybe a, a small group leader. It's their job to teach. It's our job to listen. We just take in, then we go home. No, the reason why we teach is so you can teach. In your person-to-person relationships, you are to teach and admonish one another. This word admonish is a scary concept because admonish means rebuke. That means in the body of Christ, there should be such love and care for each other that there's, there's admonishment. There's actually re- rebuking someone out of love and that you both do for the other. So as you strive for depth in your walk with Jesus, it's not just to have your own personal walk with Jesus, but so that you can teach, you can be taught, you can admonish, and this should always happen in community. This is why we have community groups in our church. This is the purpose. So you can teach and admonish each other. It's not just to the professionals. It's not just to those that get paid to do it. We do it so that you can do it. The big idea Paul's trying to communicate, I think, in this passage is that we are part of one body, the church. 
This means that if you're a Christian, you're a part of the church whether you like it or not. If, if, you're, if you claim Christ, you're a part of the church. That, that's just declared. And so now Paul is saying, let's live like it. Let's live one. Let's live unified as the church. If you look back at all that Gary talked about last week, stuff to put off, they're all relational. Everything he listed is relational in nature. Everything we're talking about today, everything to put on is relational. And I think many of us are idealistic about the church. And when it doesn't measure up, we tend to want to bail on the church. But here's what's interesting. We don't, we don't ever hold other things in our life to that same standard, do we? When you think about work and difficulties at work, we often put up with things at work because why? We need the paycheck. We see the greater purpose that we're called to. And so we put up, we bear with those things. I tell my students sometimes, I say, look, many of you guys are involved in, in soccer, basketball, volleyball, and there's that person on your team that just highly annoys you. Either that or it's you're the one who is doing that to everybody else. <laughs> and yet, what do you do? You bear with, you put up with because you just love that sport. So, so why can't that at least be what happens inside the church? Where you see the greater purpose, you see what we're called to, and you say, yes, I can, I can not just bear with, but I can love. I can move towards these people with, with this kind of love. Kevin DeYoung says, the call to unity is the summons to show in relational practice what is already true in spiritual reality. So God declares us one, now live it out as a church Live it out as a people of God. We don't have to look for things in common with other Christians. We already have the most important thing, and it's Jesus Christ. We have him in common. We have all things in common. All that we need to have in common, we already have. So how do we maintain this kind of unity? I think it has to start with something called humility. A guy named Tom Varney, he writes... The church is fundamentally no different than our own life, a complex mixture of of sin, the mess, and salvation, the masterpiece. The convincing mess of church life is such a useful scapegoat that easily overshadows my own personal mess. How many of you all got eclipsed crazy about two weeks ago? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. You were. You know you were. Well, there's another kind of eclipse that we get caught up in, I think, and it's, I think, significant because we often let the, the, the mess that we see in the church out there eclipse the sin that we have going on inside here. And I think we often get distracted by what's happening in ourselves by looking out everywhere else. And it's really amazing how we give ourselves a pass, but not the corporate church. It's amazing how we allow this dichotomy or this contradiction to exist in ourselves but not the body of Christ as if all this is going to disappear once we add more people it just disappears somehow right 
Max Lucado says, Unity doesn't begin in examining others, but in examining self. Unity begins not in demanding that others change, but in admitting that we aren't so perfect ourselves. When you and I are willing to acknowledge our own sin, we more quickly, I think, express the pattern in this passage, which is being a forgiving person. When you recognize what you've been set free from. How you and I treat other people is going to make clear whether or not we truly grab a hold of the gospel. And I think we could summarize it this way. Being rooted in Christ leads to us being replanted into community. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we go to a small group on Friday nights, and a couple of weeks ago, there was this family that came in that was brand new. And I love, I love meeting new people. I love meeting new people. And they come into the house that we're meeting at, and I walk up and I said, I said, uh, so where are you guys from? And they said, oh, New Jersey. And I said, I'm sorry. And if you didn't know, New Jersey's like the Arkansas of the Northeast, okay? Um, not I've offended two states. Um, but so, so they come in and, and they say, yeah, we just moved here we, like four days ago. And I'm thinking, wait, this isn't adding up. So you just moved in the area, but four days ago, and now you're in a small group in Temple, Texas. So how did this happen exactly? And they said, we met this person that goes to your church at a, at a function or an event at a local school. And they invited us to your church. They also invited us to the small group. And, uh, and so they gave us the address and the phone number, how to get here. And so we just showed up, and here we are. And I'm thinking, this is, this is crazy. This, this never happens this way, where someone goes to a small group before they actually come to the main service. Like, don't you guys know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to do it in the opposite. You come to this thing for like 10 years, and then you might get into a small group. Okay, that's how it's supposed to go. And I was just blown away at this family's commitment to being plugged into community and being a part of that. That's rare. And I hope that inspires you this morning. I want you to hear these words from Alec Moyer. He says, We are joined to the Lord himself in spiritual union, pondering, loving, and reveling in his revealed truth, committed to going his way, saved by grace, obedient in life. These are the things that bind us into the shared reality of being the one universal people of the Lord, the blessed company of all believers, what Paul will call the Israel of God. We need to give careful attention to all that unites and be wary of things that make differences and divide. Father, we're thankful that you call us to be one because you are one. We're thankful that you call us to be the very things that you are. So people can see us and not glorify us, but glorify you. We pray, God, this church becomes a place, is a place that isn't just unified theoretically, 
but we are unified in practice, unified in heart, unified in mission. We pray you make us a people that are like that for this city and beyond. We pray this in your name. Amen.